why? Why would the USOC vote to boycott these games? I mean, it just like seems crazy, right? Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm feeling a bit of deja vu. <laughs> I know. We had a, I went to edit the show and there was no tape. <laughs> and the, the, the recorder that said it recorded didn't give me a file. That's okay. It'll be like the lost show. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's, it's our Moby Dick. <laughs> We had some good stuff in there, and like all these deleted scenes. Literally, an entire deleted show if the file ever pops up. Oh man! If it did, it'd be just part of the horde that's on my computer. <laughs> the show must go on, though. So, we've got a couple of announcements. Next week is the one year to go celebration for Tokyo 2020, which means. That would also have been the day that Tokyo 2020 would have started. And instead of watching the opening ceremonies, we instead are not going to try to shed tears. We are going to uh, have some fun with all of you. So on Friday, July 24, from noon to 1230 Eastern time, we are having a Zoom call. And then in the evening from 8 till 10-ish, we are going to have some sort of watch party. We're tr still trying to figure out the technological details of that. And we're planning to watch the official film from Sydney 2000 because it's the 20th anniversary of that Olympics. So if you are interested in joining us for either of those, you can find a link to our form on our socials or email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com and we will send you the Zoom call info. I'm excited because one of our Shuklastanis is going to be on the Zoom call. Not saying who. No. Nice surprise. Don't forget that book club is coming up and our next book club episode will be on July 30th. We're talking about the book 1964, The Greatest Year in the History of Japan by Roy Tomizawa. Let us know what you think. Hit us up on socials. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call the voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. And then Movie Club was going to be in August, so be sure to start watching our double feature of Without Limits and Prefontaine, which are both about the Munich 1972 Olympian Steve Prefontaine. Because it's too hot to go out. That's right. We got a lot going on. It's I exciting. Know. It's, it's busy for a canceled summer. <laughs> it is. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. This, we don't have an Olympics this summer. <laughs> How could you say that? I, I know. I know. Part of me we is like, oh, ready. there's no Olympics. But man, with all the stuff that's gone on this year, I'm kind of grateful. There's, we get a little breather. This Sunday, July 19th, is the 40th anniversary of the Moscow 1980 Olympics, the first Olympics that, was that took place in Eastern Europe. And it's almost better known for the fact that 66 countries boycotted these games. We talk about the IOC's efforts to keep politics and sport separate, but the boycott was one big political move by the United States in response to the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. Today, we welcome back our Shuk Flistani archivist, Terry Hedgepeth, who, 
before retiring from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, researched the 1980 boycott, wrote a research note for the journal Olympica, and created a virtual exhibit on the U.S. Olympians who were affected by it. Take a listen. Terry, we're so glad to have you back. One of the things you did before you retired from the USOPC was put together an exhibit on the 1980 Olympians from the United States. Talk to us a little bit about why that's so important and some of the things that you've found for the exhibit. Well, 1980, boycotting the Olympic Games in Moscow was the first time that the U.S., the United States, actually boycotted an Olympic Games. It wasn't the first time we contemplated boycotting the Games. That was actually in Berlin in 1936. And of course, it was due to the repressive measures that Adolf Hitler's party, will say, used against the Jewish population in Germany and then elsewhere. So there were quite a few people within the United States in the American Olympic Committee at the time that were very vocal against it. But Avery Brundage was president of the American Olympic Committee at the time. He was very pro-German. As a matter of fact, he actually took a trip to Germany toured all the facilities, said everything is great. The German people have promised to allow Jewish people on the German Olympic Committee. No worries here. Of course, they forbade Jewish people from actually attending training camps, having access to any training facilities, and therefore they're like, oh, we're so sorry. You just don't have the qualifications to be on the Olympic team. They actually did force one Jewish fencer back from Great Britain to be on the team as their token Jewish person. So 1980 is important because it is the first time the United States boycotted the Games. It's not the first time a boycott actually happened. The first boycott actually did happen in 1936, and and that was Ireland protesting Northern Ireland being part of the Great Britain's team or the British Olympic team. Um, There were protests in 56, 60, 64, 68, 72, 76. I mean, you name it. That era was laden with boycotts. But 1980, this was in response to President Jimmy Carter's mandate against the Soviet Union to get out of Afghanistan. Right before the end of 1979, December, Christmas, Christmas Eve, right after Christmas, uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and they put in place a, a puppet leader. And Jimmy Carter condemned this vigorously, said it was against human rights and that the Soviet Union needed to get out. And if they didn't, he would do grain embargoes, you know, decrease the amount of fishing allowed, etc., and even threatened to not allow the team to go to the 1980 Games. And that's when the U.S. Olympic Committee got very fearful I wrote a small article about the measures that Carter administration levied against the USOC in an attempt to get them to vote for the boycott. This goes against Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter, which states you can't use political or racial propaganda or anything to, you know, anything like that to get in the way of the Olympic Games. And As the events unfolded, the U.S. Olympic Committee was forced to vote to boycott the Games. Now, it wasn't just the United States that boycotted. We also had over 60 other countries follow along suit with this boycott. 
And and this was the first time we had that many countries do it. Previous in the previous boycotts of the games, I think the biggest was Montreal 1976, when you had about 20 to 28 countries, African countries, actually boycott the 1976 games in Montreal due to the New Zealand rugby team touring South Africa and playing with South Africa. And they were very upset because South Africa at that time had their state-supported system of apartheid against the Black peoples of South Africa. And, and that was very disturbing at that time, of course. So I think 1980, honoring our team was very important. I mean, we're, we're hitting an anniversary when it's 40 years, but to, it's important to these athletes who train, and, and, you know, and contrary to a lot of people, you know, believe, oh, you train for four years. No, I mean, a lot of these athletes train their whole lifetime. This is their way of life. They don't know any different. It's not one year before the games, four years before the games. I mean, more often than not, it's, eight, 12, 16 years before the games that they're training. And, and for some of these athletes, this was the only opportunity that they would have to compete. For example, 1980, we didn't have pro basketball players playing on the Olympic basketball team. So that entire 1980 team, unless they became pro in 92 or were pro by then and were great enough to be on it, could not compete in the Olympic Games. That, to me, is why it was important to create this. It's a virtual exhibit. Uh, it will be on the Team USA's website. It has a headshot of each athlete and their Olympic career on it. So you get a little bit of a sense of the 400-plus people that were affected just in the United States by this boycott. Terry, do you know off the top of your head how many Americans of the 1980 team never went to an Olympics, you know, didn't go in 76 or 84? You know, that's a great question. It's not one that I actually counted. Even when we were working on solidifying the roster, it was difficult to, to narrow it down because the definition of who is an Olympian is so nebulous. The athletes that did not compete in 1980, those Olympic athletes, and that was their only games, they are not considered Olympians by the International Olympic Committee, by the IOC. For the IOC, to, for an athlete to be an Olympian, they actually have to step on the field of play and participate. Uh, that, that's the easiest way I can describe it. If you are chosen as an alternate you're not used, you're not an Olympian. And, and that's really tough. We are actually, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee is actually going against the IOC's definition of who is an Olympian by honoring not only the 1980 team, but little known facts, the 1940 team as well. Prior to World War II, we had selected most of the 1940 uh, Olympic team. And then when those games were canceled due to uh, Japan actually giving back the games to the IOC, Helsinki actually said, hey, we'll host them. But then Joseph Stalin had other plans for Finland instead. <laughs> so the games were canceled. 
so prior to that, we'd uh, effectively had, I would say, two-thirds of that team selected. So in an effort to honor the 1980 team, the USOPC actually looked back and decided to include the 1940 team as well as Olympians. So this is, this is novel to be classified as such. We have done this historically for the 80 team. We're doing it for the 1940 team as well. So that's how important this, this 1980 team is to, uh, I think, of the Americans in general and, and, and to the USOPC. That was such a good question. I wish I had counted how many Olympians <laughs> were we with their only team. We will go back and, and do that for you. Because that's actually a question that I've come across more than once and nobody seems to have the answer. And I wonder if it's because, I mean, most, and, and you can help me with this, most of the sports held their trials and named their team, right. even though they weren't going. Right. And I've had, we've had conflicting um, rosters, to be honest. I mean, it has been up to 466 members but then when you take the alternates away that the you know IOC wouldn't have counted we don't count as Olympians so then you delete those then that takes the number down takes it down I think we were at around 454 when I left and then I still had a couple of people you know reach out to me and email me and go well wait a minute we see that who was it oh it was a runner um I can't think of his name, a marathoner. He's on the team, but he didn't, you know, come in first or second in the trials. I'm like, yeah, you're right. He shouldn't be on the team, but, you know, he's pretty well known. I didn't want to take his name off and, you know, cause a big hoorah over it. But that's the, the tough part is the basic definition of who is an Olympian and who is not. Like I said, the IOC says you have to actually physically compete in order to be an Olympian. So we're trying to go against that, and then it gets even tougher. Okay, if we say no to that, then where do we say yes or no to the other aspects? So that number, guys, is going to fluctuate depending on who you talk to. I need to be the person to come up to an alternate who says I was a 1980 Olympian and say, eh, actually, you're you're not. You know, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> Right. Were there sports that hadn't done their trials or just didn't have the pool of athletes picked by the, the time the boycott was settled and then said, we're not going to pick them anyway? I think so. I can't say definitely because like for basketball, you know, we decided to boycott the games in April. That was the vote. And, and I and I can't tell you if USA Basketball continued and selected that team. Sometimes the, the team selections take a little bit longer. It's track and field. You know, it's easy. You know, did you come in first or second in that event? Yes, you're on the team. Other ones, it's a cumulative point system like in fencing, you know, and if they still had a couple of outstanding qualifiers, that maybe could have changed the ranking. So some of it was arbitrary in nature in choosing the team, but it, it was up to the governing body. Um, I would say ultimately who they would say uh, at this time, at this point in time, this is who we think would be on the team. Would that person have been on the team come July? Good question. In putting together the exhibit and the project, did you get any pushback from the IOC? Did you hear from them? 
are you kidding? I didn't talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Don't get me in trouble here. No, no, I I don't. No, I mean it's it's very interesting. The they have their definition, and and we've got this team. And every country that's had uh, been involved with the boycott has a team of athletes that will never be considered Olympians in the IOC's eyes. And it's hard right. to to reconcile that. Yeah, I, I I honestly think the IOC. I think you know it's it's that old adage. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I think we were going along those lines, but if the IOC has any comment, they may say something along the lines that they are American Olympic athletes, but they are not considered Olympic athletes in our eyes. I'm sure they would be very diplomatic, and I'm sure the USOPC, and and, and you know I can't talk for either entity right now. (laughs) These are just my views, but I'm sure that it would be handled in a very diplomatic and delicate way on both sides, because I, I... firmly believe the IOC understands the predicament of not just the United States, but all of the countries involved in boycotts and and what to do. And this may, you know, who knows? It, It may establish a precedent on how you classify an Olympic athlete who was chosen for a team but was not allowed to compete through no fault of their own whatsoever. So in putting together the project, what kind of interesting things did you discover? Because like me, you remember this actually happening. So what did what did yeah. you learn about the whole process? I, I think the, the hardest and the most difficult thing that was, you know, who is and who is not an Olympian. I think that was really the most difficult. As I got into this, I actually uh, I'm in a uh, a master's course uh, for Olympic studies with the German Sport University right now, and I wrote on this topic. And this is my first essay. I happened to show it to a friend of mine um, at Western University in Canada, and they have the Olympic Studies Center. And he's like, "This would make a great little research note. You want to get it published?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure." So when I was doing the research for that. I work for the USOPC. I hate for them to be considered the bad guy. So this was something that was really important to me. You know, why? Why would the USOC vote to boycott these games? I mean, it just like seems crazy, right? So that was my my research topic, and it was amazing what I found. The pressure that the Carter administration exerted upon the USOC to get them to vote for the boycott games. That was the most interesting aspect for me. They threatened to withhold funds that uh, from the USOC at the time. They contacted major contributors of the White House administration, directly reached out to major organizations. One of them was Sears and Roebuck, and uh, a White House administrator convinced the CEO or president of Sears and Roebuck at the time, hey, don't give them that final installment of money. They reached out to you know, supporters across the country. You've got to convince the USOC to vote. They threatened to take the USOC off of federal land. Um, the uh, training center and Olympic House at the time uh, is based, the training center in Colorado Springs was on the former Ent Air Force Base. 
And in 1977-78, they moved uh, when an Air Force Base closed. They had this area, and this was a prime place to, to move to. And so they opened the Olympic Training Center, had a great deal worked out with the federal government. Uh, you know, I think the first lease was like a $10 a year or something like that, some crazy little amount. And the Carter administration threatened to say, you know, throw them off of federal lands. They threatened to remove their tax-exempt status. And, and then, to me, the lowest blow of all, the executive director at the time, Colonel F. Don Miller, was Air Force retired, and there, were e- there was even talk of removing his retirement, you know, stripping him of his own retirement. I mean, it was crazy. They pressured the USOC to go to the IOC to move the games, but, you know, there was no way that the IOC was going to support that. They, Lord Colleen and the IOC president at the time said, no, uh, Moscow has to do something, you know, out of the ordinary for us to remove the games. There, there's no possible way anyone else can host the game. And, and so, you know, we were just caught um, – <laughs> Uh, the name of my paper, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, you know, at the time. What do we do? What do we do? And if the measures that the Carter administration threatened the USOC with, if those had been actually occurred, it would have crippled, financially crippled the USOC, and it would have been the end of them. So the executive committee voted to take it to the um quadrennial meeting of the House of Delegates, April 12th, to the general vote, and majority ruled, I think it was 1,600 to almost 800 that voted for the boycott. It was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Carter administration, President Carter was seen as kind of weak on the um, international affairs. We'd had the hostages in Iran. We had that failed uh, rescue attempt. I mean, and he was really trying to flex his muscles here and stand firm against the Soviet Union. And um, as support waned between February, March, and the first part of April, he just had to really pressure um, the USOC more and more to vote for it. And that was the most interesting thing for me. It's like, aha, I get it. Because you know, in my research, there were letters sent to the athletes, sent to Olympic supporters by the USOC president, Robert Kane, saying, we don't support this. We, we think it's wrong, you know, for the Olympic Games, this tool of peace to be used in this manner. And then, you know, to do a 180 and vote for the boycott. That's, that's really surprised me. But now I know why. Wow. That's just, it's fascinating how much... Uh, it's it, it's such a complex situation too. That's that seems to be the yeah. hard the hard part to deal with. And I think that's something that you know it's it's really tough. The organization is there for the Olympic athletes, and without the Olympic athletes, there wouldn't be an Olympic Games. There wouldn't be the Olympic movement. And for people in positions of authority to fail to remember that. And to use this awesome instrument of peace in a political manner, it, it just really, it bothers me. But sad to say, the history of the Olympic movement, the Olympic Games is fraught with it. Between the boycotts and, I mean, numerous boycotts from 36 all the way through 1988, 
to even Olympic bands where the IOC banned countries from competing. I mean, there's virtually, I mean, there are very few actual Olympiads that haven't had some sort of political activism, athlete activism, a boycott, an armed conflict, or an IOC band. And the ideal is always we're apolitical. We don't want politics yeah. to invade sports. I mean, Brundage was the the biggest advocate of, you know, sports is sports and politics and is politics. And yet that's not yeah. what history has borne out. Well, let's see. Brundage became IOC president in 1952. From 1952 to 1972, there were one, two, three, four, five boycotts, three IOC bans, an armed conflict, Munich 72, of course, two instances of athlete activism, that's 68, of course, Black Power Salute in 72, um, once again, U.S. athletes. Um, when, and most often when I say activism, well, athlete activism can be any any country, but you know I always have a historic U.S. Uh, lens to it. I mean, so even though you know he says they should be apolitical, I mean he was right there alongside. Um, a lot of it, I mean, and it was it was always directed boycotts um, and bans, always directed at the countries and never at the athletes themselves. When the communists invaded China, that created the two Chinas problem. And uh, you see Taiwan, who says they're the you know real Republic of China, and you see the People's Republic of China, mainland communist China, say, no, we're the real China. And you see these two countries through the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, you know, not able to compete together, or one is allowed, the other isn't, or they're both allowed, and one says, I'm not going to. Um, you know, it's always, it's always political in nature, armed conflict. You know, that wasn't, had nothing to do with the, the athletes themselves, uh, even Atlanta. You know, I hate to say that, it wasn't. It's fascinating, and then it, it, brings a whole like it just makes you want to go in five million directions on like stuff to look at historical wise and it's that's why we love love doing this show because we get to delve into all this history and it's 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 always more than just athletes competing at a big mega event right right and and i think i think you hit it on the head when you said mega event it is the largest sporting event, you know, I apologize, soccer, World Cup fans, but it is the largest multi-sport event in the world. Um, it, it really is. And for those that have a political agenda, it is a perfect opportunity to get their message out, their voice heard, and use the athletes as pawns. And, and I've seen this, you know, so many times. Um, as a side note, my second semester, I'm writing another paper, and this one is actually on athlete representation within the USOC. When did it actually occur? Everyone thinks it was, you know, the Amateur um, uh, Sports Act of 1978. But, you know, through my research, I found it was actually earlier. And, you know, once again, we have a conflict, you know, the NCAA and the AAU are trying to control amateur sports in the United States. And who do they use? They use the athletes. 
to get their point across and who should be in control and not allow athletes to compete in this event or sanction athletes that competed in that event because it wasn't approved by the AAU or the NCAA. And it's, it's just so sad when, when I see these awesome young people, these, these athletes who spend their entire lives preparing for something to be less than 10 seconds. You know, a 100-meter dash, uh, you've got to be less than 10 seconds and you may not make it out of the quarterfinals, the semifinals. You may not make it, you know, any further. And for 10 seconds, that is your one shot. And it is just sad when I see countries ignore that dedication. So on the topic of the athletes, what has been the athlete response to your work? Oh, man. I, I tell you what, um, it's great. The 1980 team is so supportive of this and and our virtual exhibit is actually in support of the new u.s olympic and paralympic museum they're actually devoting as last i knew they were devoting a wall to the 1980 team because it is such a pivotal moment in our history um you know i stated earlier the 1940 team is also um you know the usopc is considering them olympic athletes as well but, you know, it's sad to say, you know, 40 more years have passed and and a lot of those athletes still are not, you know, are not still around. And a lot of our 1980 athletes are. And this is our opportunity to stand up and say, you count. And this is how much you, you mean to us. Uh, the USOPC is really working to put the athletes first. And that's been a primary focus in recent years and in the last couple of years. And, and this is one instance where they can look back and say, you count, you matter to us as well. So along with the headshots and bios in the exhibit, are there any other artifacts that you found and added to it? For us, we're just doing the virtual exhibit and we're highlighting the headshots from our collection because our virtual exhibit for the USOPC is um, items that we have in our collection and we've been showing the torches and the medals. So we wanna let people know we also have these awesome photographs. And, and it was really tough to narrow it down because we could go, oh, we could do this and that and this and that. And then we started trying to keep it simple and, 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 you know, short and sweet and to the point, but the Olympic and Paralympic Museum, they actually will have some artifacts. I know they reached out to Carol Brown and Carol Brown um, it was on the 1980 rowing team along with Anita de France, um, IOC member. Um, she's a member of the USOPC board as well. And, and she was very active. She actually brought a case along with other athletes against the USOC after they voted for the boycott. Uh, the case, uh, a, a civil suit, uh, the case was um, later dismissed. But this is how important the athletes felt. Um, and, and, and I applaud them 100%. I really do for sticking to their dream and following through and saying, okay, you shut this door, but what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And that was the neatest aspect to me to see that. Carol Brown, the rower, actually had a button uh, created. And, and I wish I could remember what it was. It wasn't in our collection, and I know the museum reached out to get it from her. 
Um, they had T-shirts made. I read that in Anita de France's oral history that the rowers um, wore to the um, week at the White House, you know, the celebratory week while the Moscow games are on. We're going to invite you to the White House. Yay, great. Same White House that said we couldn't go. <laughs> you know, I mean, so that was just like to me, like, ugh, that would stick in my craw. But I mean, the rowers, uh, Anita went and she said, I wore this t shirt. And, and it was important to me for them to see that, hey, we didn't agree with this and, and we still don't agree with it. So there will be some artifacts in the museum exhibit. What memories do you have of 1980 and what you thought of it at the time? In 1980, I was in I was in high school, and I think the 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 hardest part is is that you watch the Olympic Games at Lake Placid, and you get that awesome sense of you know USA, and you know the miracle on ice and everything that's going on in February, and and you just you're so full of patriotism and you're like, yeah. And you want to, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. You want to stick it to them, you know, the, the Soviet Union. This is that era that I grew up in, the Red Scare, you name it. And, you know, on the other side of the coin, your president's saying we're going to boycott the games. And and so it's, it's hard. I wasn't a great athlete in high school, but I was an athlete. I ran track and cross country. You know, I was always the last person on the team, you know, uh, but I contributed. I wasn't the alternate. I was on the team, you know, but, and it was really tough because you want that same sense. You want to have our athletes go to the summer games and excel. And that opportunity is not there. So I think it was, I felt let down because you're, you're riding that high and then two months later, you know your athletes aren't going to go, and it, it you just it it kind of crushed your dream, you know. And and this is just me on the sideline. I had no idea I'd be working for the Olympic and Paralympic Committee later. I had no idea. I was a farm girl from Kentucky, and and I think that was the the hardest part. And then you know later in November. Um, Jimmy Carter's uh, not reelected. Uh, he didn't win. And we have the you know, Ronald Reagan come in with a new administration and a new feel. And I think that whole, the whole summer, it was just kind of meh because, you know, we didn't watch the games. We didn't care. We didn't care who was doing what. Okay. All right. I was a Stebco fan. I did care about the 1500 meter. But <laughs> other than that, I mean, that was, that was it. We just, I didn't watch the games. My family didn't watch the games in Moscow because, I mean, well, first of all, would you even get coverage? And and secondly, the Americans weren't there, so who cares? Yeah, that's tough. But how did you feel? It's a big black hole for me. I we I was probably in third grade-ish. I was about eight years old then, not quite eight. So I don't, I remember a little bit of 76 because my best friend was a Dorothy Hamill fan. And I don't really remember 1980, Lake Placid. And, uh, but, and then 80 Moscow is just nothing's there, but 84 LA is when I got hooked. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
and and Sebco did the back to back. I mean, you know, I you know, like I said, I was track and field. Here's this awesome, cute runner, this British runner, and he's just fantastic. <laughs> I had my crushes in high school. <laughs> but, um, have you ever really, have you ever gotten to meet him since? No. Oh, wow. are you kidding? I would love to. I'd love to work for the I. Well, they're not the IAAF anymore. I would love to work for World Track and Field or what you know, whatever it is now. But I mean, that was my dream. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I would. I just loved know, to like, at some event at for you know some Olympic event that you had attended, if he was there, <laughs> you'd just be like, oh my god, go. Oh no! You know, I I am such a huge track and field fan, though. Um, let's see. I think it was two years working for the USOPC, and I was doing a small exhibit for their Olympic assembly that they have every year. And I'm standing in the hallway, and this guy comes up to me and says, "I need to talk to you." And I look up, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Before I talk to you, can I get a picture? And he's like, sure, yeah, it was Dick Fosbury. You know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's Dick Fosbury. He needs to talk to me. (laughs) Okay, okay, what can I do? I mean, I was totally geeking out. I do that all the time. I mean, I met Rayford Johnson, the same thing, you know. And, oh, and he's such a flirt, too. (laughs) Just like, wow. I think the hardest part was, okay, Terry, they're real people. You can act like normal. I'm like, no, I can't. This is Dick Fosbury talking to me. I know we we have our moments where all of a sudden we're twelve year old fangirls, and then you're like, oh wait a second, I have to be yeah. professional now. <laughs> I, yeah, it is it is so sad. I mean, I I loved my job because I got to meet so many um, just awesome awesome athletes, you know, and I got to meet them, and then I got to meet the the lesser known ones too that are still Olympians, they still represent in their country. And, and it was just always so tough for me to, to talk to them. And they're like, oh, I don't matter. I'm like, yeah, you do. I, and I'm thinking of one in particular who pretty much said that to me. And it was Ernie Cunliffe. And he was an 800-meter runner. And he was so good. He was in Bill Bowerman, um, Kenny Moore's book, uh, Bowerman and the, the Men of Oregon. That Bill Bowerman, you know, he was telling his athletes, like, hey, you need to watch out for Cunliffe because he is going to get you. I mean, that's how good he was. You know, that's – and he's like, well, I, you know, I, I didn't win a medal. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Ernie, stop it. And, and then we had this great little um, – you know, relationship that he call, you know, every, every year or so asked a question and, and it's always made me happy that like, oh, I'm talking to Ernie again, but yeah, it, it's funny how we have a tendency to geek out over, over certain athletes and, and, you know, we all have our thing. If you love figure skating or swimming or, or whatever. As we speak, the 1980 exhibit is still coming soon. Do you know when it will go live? go live uh i think the first couple weeks of july now since i left and a lot of other people have left i don't know if that is still on track we had uh most of the images digitized because that was a huge project for us to get all of those uh digitized we had most of them digitized most of the background work on doing the uh, uh, just the research on, you know, do they compete in other games, et cetera, you know, solidifying that. And then we were still working on 
is this guy an alternate or an actual Olympian? Um, he didn't come first and second in the trials, but he's on the roster. Is he an Olympian or not? You know, that kind of stuff. So there were still a lot of tough questions. And sad to say, guys, I know the person who was really spearheading that selection and trying to get that narrowed down and defined, um, she was one of the people let go the following week after after me. Yeah. So I, I, I can't speak to that. Gotcha. Well, we will keep an eye on that and look for it. Thank you so much, Terry. Follow Terry on LinkedIn. And she's got she's always got fun stuff that she posts about memorabilia and collections and archiving. And that she's just a lot of fun to to follow there. The exhibit that she put together will be at teamusa.org slash archives. It's not up yet, but uh, we'll keep an eye on it and let you know. We are also working on a side project about the 1980 boycott. So if you were involved or have historical context to present, we would be interested in talking with you. Please email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com and put boycott in the subject line and we'll get back to you to talk further. Because not that people want to boycott us. Oh, we hope so. Hope not. I don't think they'd have a real boycott. They just wouldn't listen. I mean, like, there's a lot of people boycotting this show. <laughs> if you think about it. They don't even realize they've organized a boycott. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, but Terry was great, as always. I know. The 1980 boycott is one of those defining moments of my life. Yeah. In a strange way. It's sort of like, it's probably my one of the earliest memories I have Wow! of the Olympics in general was just how sad I was about that. I was heartbroken. I was a heartbroken little kid over Aww. this. And I totally did not understand. Oh, no. I, you know what? Let's be serious. I still don't understand. I, I'm with you on that. Why did this happen? But let's not go there because I'll just rant and unlike other shows. Right, we'll, we'll save that for the other project i know <laughs> let's see what's going on with our team keep the flame alive welcome to shuklastan the publication the tribune out of india has reported that the indian olympic association has put together a 15-member committee to monitor the preparedness and needs of the indian athletes not on the committee list, our very own loser and six-time Olympian, Shiva Keshavan. Who has been working quite diligently on building winter sports in India. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. He has got so much experience in knowing how games get put on, having been to a lot of them. But Shiva, we're feeling for you. It makes Makes no sense. You know it's got to be some political gamesmanship going Can't on. Can't possibly. Sport and politics don't mix. How, how does that happen? This whole yeah. episode is about sport and politics. <laughs> no. Okay, here's the necessary mention of Avery Brundage. Let's all groan. <laughs> Moving on. 
All right. Uh, Claire Egan and the U.S. Women's Biathlon team are having a bonfire T-shirt campaign to help fundraise for their costs of racing overseas. So this is separate from USA Biathlon. They're putting out a new T-shirt design every couple of weeks. And you can buy the T-shirt at bonfire.com slash store slash U.S. Biathlon Women. Claire told me that the money goes to offset their travel costs like plane tickets and trip fees, which this coming year is going to be pretty pricey because they the Biathlon World Cup circuit usually stays mostly in Europe. Sometimes they'll go over to North America, but this year they'll have to go over to China as well because they'll have the test event in Beijing for Beijing 2022. So you add a whole other trip that's not usually on the on the agenda in the budget. Right. So check out their store. The designs are cool. They are very cool. I highly recommend an ice blue snowflake tank. Ooh, very nice. I know I know we have a package on the way. I just I think my whole my whole t shirt drawer is become going to become biathlon clothing. I see no problem with that. <laughs> John Schuster and his team have been nominated for Team USA's Team of the Year. Fans have until July 20 to vote, and you can do so at TeamUSA.org. Congratulations to them for the nomination. And our ice dancer Charlie White and his lovely wife Tanith were hosts of the International Skating Union's inaugural ISU Skating Awards. This was a virtual award show that took place on July 11th, and you can watch the replay at ISU.org. And weren't they charming? They were. Oh, yeah. It's always nice to see them work together. And that was really, uh, I saw clips of the ceremony, so it looked like a lot of fun. It was. It was a, a true skating celebration. Let's move on to some IOC news. So this week is the big IOC session meeting, which is like their annual meeting where all the IOC members get together. That's tomorrow, but the executive board met on Wednesday, which uh, Wednesday the 15th, and then TBOC had a press conference afterwards. Uh, the big news out of that was that the Youth Olympic Games in Dakar in Senegal, that's supposed to be in 2022, got moved to 2026. And TBOC said, we've got five games in three years and federations and NOCs said that was a lot. And when you kind of do the math it's more like five games in four years but you know that's splitting hairs and still yeah it's still a lot so that got moved 2026 the cities who wanted to bid for the summer youth olympic games in 2026 are now being they're now talking about 2030 so they kind of have a little preferential status going into that bid race because they've already been talking with the ioc about it it'll be interesting to see what happens i mean we have thoughts about the Youth Olympic Games and their existence, but it's interesting to see that that's getting pushed and, and hopefully they'll save some money on that. They're just going to skip the whole cycle for one For session. one summer games, yeah. Okay. Uh, they also gave a financial update on the support for the Olympic movement. So uh, they've got this envelope system, and it's an $800 million envelope that they use to uh, give money to different uh, NOCs and international federations. So since the beginning of COVID, the IOCs provided $100 million to NOCs and international federations. The federations have gotten $63 million. The NOCs have gotten $37 million. And then the top sponsor program 
allocated another $150 million that's payable by the end of the year. And in all of this $800 million, the IOC had to ask their foundation for help. And the foundation allocated up to $300 million for this $800 million envelope. Yeah, I love how they refer to the $800 million as an envelope. I know. <laughs> Just, you know <laughs> so you didn't have a lot of Italian-Americans at your wedding, but I did. And they hand you envelopes of cash. Right. <laughs> so I kind of envisioned T-Bot kind of walking around the room going, here's a million for you. Here's... And those are fat envelopes, you know, because... Have you ever seen a $1,000 bill? I haven't. I don't even know if they exist. But just handing out these envelopes of cash, which is so not how this happens, because we're talking about $800 million. But the numbers are mind-boggling. It, it is. The, the whole process of who's gotten what, because some international federations are doing okay and haven't needed money, and a lot aren't, and a lot of NOCs aren't doing well because they have we're relying on the revenue coming from the Tokyo 2020 games, and that's not going to come until next year that we know of right now. So it'll be interesting to see how everybody's budget works going forward. I think what'll be really interesting is when we're, I mean, we're going to be slammed all at once because there's Tokyo and then six months later is Beijing. And once we kind of clean up from Beijing, I guess kind of the end of 2022, where all these are shaking out, you know, where national organizing committees are, where the the federations are, where everything is kind of settled out mm -hmm. over this two years of real financial insecurity. Right. And where this happens and is Tokyo and Beijing going to be, or are they going to be scaled back and the frugal games and all those things that they're talking about now and what really comes to pass. It's its a real crossroads for the IOC Yeah, with this experience. It'll be interesting. And one of the things about the IOC session meeting is that the, the agenda says that every games is going to give a report. So there'll be a report from Tokyo. There'll be a report from John Coates, who's the IOC member uh, heading up the organizing, uh, the commission from the IOC side. So, We'll see what they have to say if they have any big revelations about what they're going to do next year. Oh, John Coates. No, it's so excited to watch that. I wonder if he knows that he has fangirls. I don't know. I don't know. We need a, we need a name. The John Coates click or something? No, we got to do better than that. I don't know. I don't know. Dick Pound went rogue. Speaking of... Uh, oh, no. Yeah, so he said in Inside the Games today that Beijing would meet the same fate if Tokyo 2020 can't be held. What? Yeah, so if they can't hold... Now, now the big question is, because coronavirus is surging, especially in America, but other countries are seeing surges in the virus, so will that affect the 2021 games? And if it does, well, Beijing 2022 will probably be in trouble as well. Wow. I'm not ready for that. Yeah, I know, except for, so, but I, I took this with a grain of salt when Dick Pound is quoted here saying, well, China will certainly not be discussed at the next IOC session we have on Friday. And I just went, Dick Pound, it's on the agenda. All of the games on the agenda, giving reports, so. Oh, so wait a second. So it's on the agenda that each of the organizing committees are giving a report and Dick Pound is saying, we're not going to talk about Beijing? Yeah. 
Yeah, I have my agenda right here. Did he just not read his file? He must not have. No, I know because it's IOC president's report, governance stuff, uh, director general's report, then reports on the activities of the coordination commissions and the OCOGs. Tokyo, Beijing, Paris, Milano, Cortina, L.A., and Dakar 2022. I don't know what, what agenda Dick Pound's going with, but... Wow. You know what it is? It's because he doesn't have his assistant whispering in his ear. Maybe not. I wonder Saying. if Zoom has like a whisper feature or what. That's what they need. Whatever conference system they're using, it needs a whisper feature so their assistant can go, hey. The agenda, it's on page two of the agenda, Dick. Right. So, oh, so yeah. he's going rogue. We'll see what happens with that. But Yikes. we'll uh, we'll have more on the IOC next week. Uh, one last piece of Olympic news, and uh, NBC Sports reported that Squaw Valley might change its name. This would be the the Squaw Valley Ski Resort in Tahoe City, California, where the 1960 Olympics were held. So. Squaw is derived from the Algonquin language, and it may once have simply meant woman, but over the generations, it's taken on a misogynist and racist tone and uh, disparages indigenous women. So uh, this has been kind of a reckoning our country has come to over the last couple of months with the Black Lives Matter movement. So we're really coming to terms with what we've named things and who we've named them after. And you're starting to see a lot of mascots and things that have been seen as racist. They're starting to disappear. And so uh, the ski resort might be one of them. So we'll see what happens. And their proposed name? Olympic Valley. I do like that. Which is nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like it's, if anything, it's honoring their history even more. Yes. Which is great. We'll keep you posted on that. And... On that note, that will wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you think about the boycott of Moscow 1980. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we'll have a wrap-up of the IOC session and find out what's going on with all of the upcoming games and what Dick Pound is doing since he's going rogue. Be sure to tune in for that. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. I'm feeling a bit of deja vu.